I think the thing about hope is, is that hope to some people may, my child's going to get cured. To some of us, hope is my child's not going to experience any pain today. It changes. For example, when Jack was born, he didn't have a diagnosis. I hoped he was going to get off the ventilator and be fine. When that wasn't going to happen, then I hoped he could learn to drive his wheelchair and use his eye gaze. And then towards the end of his life, I just hoped he woke up and wasn't in pain. Welcome to the Unforgotten Families podcast, an action-oriented community of hope, inclusivity, and compassion for all medically fragile families. This podcast was created to spread awareness, share solutions, and advocate for the needs of these resilient individuals. It's our hope that the information and stories we share will inspire and empower you to join us in advocating for these families and help to ensure that they are never forgotten. Hello, Tough Advocates. Thank you so much for joining another episode of the Unforgotten Families podcast. Before we start, please remember to subscribe wherever you're listening to help support this community. Today, we're very grateful to be speaking with Anne Schruten, who is the co-author of a book called Shared Struggles, Stories from Parents and Pediatricians Caring for Children with Serious Illness. This book provides a very unique glimpse into how parents and physicians think, feel, and interact through real stories from each side. Hope, compassion, communication, and trust are the sections that organically came through as Anne and Dr. Barry Markovitz put together this book. In this episode, Anne will discuss the takeaways from the book's shared struggles, share her personal experience raising a medically fragile child for over 15 years, and how this experience, coupled with her deep relationship with Dr. Markovitz, inspired this book to come through. We really hope you enjoy. I'm very grateful today to be here with Anne Schruten, who is the author of a book called Shared Struggles. And I feel like we have had this intertwining of paths crossing where we have a couple mutual connections and it's been really cool to see. And I just want to say thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me. I appreciate the opportunity. We are super grateful to have you. And I wanted to just first just kind of get into your book. And I would love to just know what was your inspiration for writing the book? Well, the book, so just a little bit of background. I, I have a son, Jack, who um, was born with um, rare congenital muscle atrophy, and he was um, trached and ventilator dependent and had a G-tube. And, and because of him, I met a network of other parents of medically fragile children over the course of his life. He passed away when he was 15. And also, you know, a network of physicians who cared for him over their life. And the book came about after Jack, uh, after Jack died, one of his doctors who had cared for him early on in the pediatric intensive where he was um, spent a great deal of the first year of his life in St. Louis, um, he and I had, had stayed in contact over the course of Jack's life. He was sort of my voice of reason whenever I had questions or just wanted to reach out and have him sort of calm me down, um, you know, with various things I dealt with with Jack. And so after Jack died, we, we sort of recognized that we had this over the course of Jack's life, this sort of this shared perspective, this, this, you know, 
me bouncing things off of him, him listening to my story as the parent of a medically fragile child. And we thought, you know, we really need to expand what we have because we've learned so much from each other over the course of Jack's life and use that as a way to educate young doctors and or all doctors who care for medically fragile ch- children to see the parents' perspective, but also for parents to understand the doctor's perspective. And so the sort of the book it, it took six years to write, but the inspiration was obviously the connection was the connection with Jack. Jack was the inspiration. He was the thread that we, you know, tied us all together. So it was that and the connection with Barry Markovitz, who is also a co-editor. And he is currently the director of critical care medicine and anesthesiology at Children's Hospital Los Angeles. So we got together, bounced off ideas about what we wanted the book to be. It's a compilation of stories. And then we reached out through my network of parents, you know, soliciting stories from parents, you know, just about Tell us about a, an encounter or a relationship you had with the physician with your child and, and how it could be a teaching moment for other physicians, whether it be because the interaction w- went really well and they did it right, or this is what they didn't do or they could do better, and this is why. And it's called narrative medicine, I mean, learning through storytelling. And, um, and then the physician's stories you know, Barry reached out to his network. He's a, you know, being an ICU doctor, they see, you know, they see quite a few medically complex children, you know, through the course of in and out of the PICU. So he reached out to his network, as well as me reaching out to Jack's doctors, who then reached out to other doctors. This massive network of connections to bring it together. We're just very lucky to have a lot of people wanting to get on board and share stories. So there's 46 stories in the book. Um, about half from from physicians, half from parents. And, and so that it's really all about sharing both sides' perspectives and sort of so understanding each other to be able to sort of create a bridge of understanding, as we say. So everybody steps back a little bit and understands where everybody is coming from and, and just using that as um, just a way to learn from each other. And the stories are grouped under four categories, compassion, trust, communication, and hope. That's the sort of the main messages that come from the stories. Beautiful. It sounds like it could be very beneficial for both families and doctors to experience it and to really just see what the lens of um the other side. Are there any stories you can share that like an idea of, what, of like what a story might look like? Well, and, and just from for the parents' perspective, I think it's it's also it, the stories resonate with you. You read them. I mean, any parent of a medically complex child who's spent any time around doctors, which is all of us, um, it's going to resonate. These are universal themes and experiences that we have. But I will tell you, one of the most compelling for me stories in this book was written by a physician about his interac- interaction with a, a mom and a child who was nonverbal. It's in the communication section. And my son was also nonverbal. His disease affected his eyes, muscles, and brain. So he had cognitive impairments and never spoke. Um, and so it's the fact that even though our children don't speak verbally, they speak 
whether it's through their eyes, through their facial expressions. And obviously, as a parent, we learn our child's language. But a lot of physicians or many physicians, they don't get that our children can really talk without words. And so it was, it was, it was a, the story is about this physician who met this patient in the emergency room and encountered her several times through hospital admissions, but then ended up going to her house as part of his palliative care training and met her in her own environment when she wasn't sick. And it was a connection that he made with her, a nonverbal connection that changed his whole view of how, how children can, can communicate without words. And it's very powerful and hits home. If it hit home very deeply with me, and I know for many parents it will. Yeah. As, as a mother who had a child who was nonverbal, and for people that maybe don't know exactly how that looks, what are some of the, the ways that you do communicate? And what are some of, and I know that's a nuanced thing for every child, but um, what are some of the struggles that come up for you? And then also, what are some of the ways that you were able to communicate? Well, I think the biggest struggle is when he's obviously, when your child's obviously in pain and hurting and they can't tell you what hurts. That is by far the most brutal part of my son's disease. And I'm sure any parent who has a nonverbal child will tell you that because we never, I mean, seeing your child in pain and not knowing why, and then trying to get a physician, the doctors to listen to you that something's wrong. Um, but it's communication with Jax, it was his eyes. I mean, our kids have pretty powerful eyes and they, they speak through their eyes and, and their smiles or when they're not smiling, the facial expressions that you learn, whether your child's feeling well, not feeling well, feeling great, happy, sad. I mean, Jack had an incredible sense of humor for a child who never spoke a word. And I am not the only person who knew that about him. His teachers, his therapists, they all, you know, he could laugh just because he couldn't talk to me and he couldn't laugh. So he, and he just had a twinkle in his eye. And I think anyone who has a nonverbal child understands what, what I'm talking about. Yeah. That's something that I'd be interested in and talking to you a little bit about too is um, how long, you know, like as a, as we talk about the struggles with something like that, um, you, you had in-home nursing at your home. It's crazy. I actually know who your nurse was. We talked about that. And um, how long do you feel like it takes for a nurse to come in and be able to truly connect with a child who's nonverbal and be able to communicate with them? Wow, that's a good question. Um, I mean, because even me as a new parent, I always, you know, just, I always say that we talk a lot about a parent's intuition with their child, our gut with our child. And I, and I even say in this book is a commentary to every story, one from written by me as the parent perspective and one written by Dr. Barry Markovitz as the physician perspective to sort of give the independent perspective of the message of the story. So, you know, one, one comment, one of the stories we talk about, a parent's gut feeling. And when Jack was first born, I had no gut feeling. I didn't know anything about sick kids, technology, traits, events, nonverbal kids. So it obviously it took me as his own mom, who was around him all the time, to learn what 
those nonverbal cues were. A nurse coming in, I mean, you you obviously need continuity of nursing to get somebody who truly understands your child. We were very fortunate that our primary nurse we had for years, she was with us. I mean, obviously we came from St. Louis. We had nurses there. Then we moved, I, we moved back to Arizona in 2002. Um, as far as getting to know him, I mean, I, I've got to believe it's at least months to, to know him as you care for him, you know, throughout the day. But certainly by 11 years, Jackson knew him as well as we did. Yeah, eleven. You, you. Uh, I, I feel like that's an anomaly to have that, um, like that long standing of a nurse, and to have. What did, was it? Did that nurse cover the all the hours that you had authorized? No, because we, and and it was an anomaly. And again, a very we we're very lucky. Um, she couldn't cover all the hours because we had more than forty hours a week approves. She did four days a week for the most part. And we had, the problem is that one day a week nurse was a revolving door. And that was probably by, you know, by far the most stressful day of my week was when the one day a week nurse came. Um, I work full-time outside the home. My husband worked full-time outside the home um, because that's just what we had to do. I know not everybody wants to or can do that, but um, we relied very heavily on our nurses. And and for someone that doesn't understand why that day was, I mean, it it, it seems kind of obvious, uh, maybe to you and I, but like, why was that day so tough? Like, what what is having a nurse one one day a week? What kind of struggles does that cause? Well, first of all, they don't get to know your child that well. Um, Jack, being non nonverbal, he can't tell them what he needs. It takes time to learn what he needs. And Jack, quite frankly, was fragile. All these children are fat, fragile. I mean, he had a tube in his neck that, the trach tube that had to be, his secretions had to be cleared. You know, he had to be his med, he had to have treat, you know, treatments. He had to be moved without breaking anything. I mean, he was very fragile with his bones because he never, you know, bared weight. And just little things that it doesn't take much to to upset, you know, to, to cause harm to him, quite frankly, and not purposefully, but if you don't know him, don't know how fragile he is, don't know how often he needs suctioning. Every kid is different. It's just the care is intense. It's not just caring for a child. It's caring for a child you literally have to keep alive. And so if you don't know that child well, you know, and it takes time to learn what they need to be comfortable and safe. You know, we're stressing out when we have new nurses. <laughs> it's just a given. Yeah. And the same stress, and the same stress comes to you when you go to a hospital with your child. You have your routine. You know what works for your child. So you go into a hospital and they do things their way. And again, that's that's stressful as well. Yeah, and I think like. I just think about you have this anomaly. You have this awesome nurse that's four days and then there's that one day and there's families that have that same feeling you had on Friday every day of the week. Um, and that's something that, you know, I, I'm trying my best to to try to paint a picture of what that looks like for people that don't understand. And I, again, will never understand, but I have an understanding because I've, I've been in the homes, you know? Um, one thing that you brought up 
uh, about your like the four things that came out, and I think they were communication, that compassion, hope, trust, and what was the fourth one? I think you got a communication, compassion, trust, and hope. Communication, compassion, trust, and hope, and mm-hmm. two of two of those, um, compassion and hope are two of our pillars at the unforgotten families. What would you say after, you know, not just being a mother of a medically fragile child for 15 years, but also someone that's now created this book and have this compilation of all these stories. What would you say the two biggest things that came through in regards to hope and compassion um, while creating this book? Well, I think for compassion, compassion can be, as these stories will show you, shown in many ways. It can be from being there for the family when there's nothing more you can do medically, but you can be there to support them at the end of their child's life. There's compassion in the way you talk to the child. There's compassion in the way you talk to the parent. Um, there's compassion in the way you support the family. There's just, it, it's not, it's not just all how you talk. It's, I mean, obviously it's how, how you deliver health care, but even just how you support the family. I mean, there's just some great stories in there about that. I think the thing about hope is that I think doctors are fearful of giving false hope or unrealistic hope, and they don't want to be held to what you told me and then it didn't happen because they do get that pushback. So they're hesitant to always sort of give you the worst case scenario. And then if it's not that you feel, you know, then they didn't, the bad guy. Um, And I think, I think the thing about hope is, is that hope to some people may, my child's going to get cured to some of us. Hope is my child's not going to experience any pain today. It changes. For example, when Jack was born, he didn't have a diagnosis. I hoped he was going to get off the ventilator and be fine when that wasn't going to happen then I hoped he could learn to drive his wheelchair and use his eye gaze. And then towards the end of his life, I just hoped he woke up and wasn't in pain. So it's hope changes. And I think doctors need to be aware that hope and that we parents are very realistic about what ultimately is going to happen with our child or what our child can ultimately accomplish or what, what they'll be able to do with it within the context of their disease that we don't, I don't believe we need them to temper our hope. We get it. So just be there to support us. And also don't be afraid to, to have hope yourself. I mean, one of the really great stories in here, another beautiful story written by a doctor talks about, he's a, a physiatrist. So he, he's respond, you know, kids have some kind of devastating disease or, event, you know, bring, rehabilitate them to the best of his ability. And he says, for some kids, it's just finding joy. That's the hope. So hope is different for everybody. And just be open to, to giving, if nothing else, finding joy. I really like that distinction about how hope, like the, 
the goalpost can kind of change for hope as time goes on. And I had another family I talked to in Colorado just talking about how like when milestones aren't met, then it kind of every time that kind of changes your hope. Um, and I think that's a really, um, a nice thing to know and a nice thing to think about. And I also loved your points you made about compassion. And I think about myself, like the first time I walked into a, a child's home, um, in a family's home and I didn't know how to act, you know, I, I didn't know how to, you know, but by the end I, I knew how to interact, whether they were verbal or nonverbal. And, um, I, I felt like I did at least, you know, I feel like I mm-hmm. interacted with them and I talked to them and, um, yeah. And it is such a, it's, it's all a learning experience, right? Right. And just listening. Parents want to be heard. And, and, and another point is, even if you have a different opinion or position than the parents, at least listen to us. Tell us why you, you, you have a different opinion or idea, but at least validate what we have to say, because we have experience. We know our child and, and we're part of the team and, and our input matters. And you have that motherly or fatherly intuition. Correct. Correct. So one thing I wanted to ask you about is, you know, you've been in this world a long time, you know, having in-home care. And basically for people that don't fully understand that, it's basically the state and sometimes insurance will make sure that you have um, a certain amount of hours so that you can so legally your child can be home and safe instead of living in a facility. What are some of the solutions that you've heard about or seen that you think are potentially beneficial for families like yours? Well, for us, I mean, we had nurse that, you know, you, you have, you only have so many hours. Not at, at this point, I don't recall how many hours, but basically we had nursing when we were at work. My husband would leave work early. I would wait till the nurse showed up and get the other three kids off to school when the nurse showed up. Then my husband would get home, the nurse would leave, and then I would get home. So we had, basically we had nursing when we weren't home. We didn't have nursing when we were home, which doesn't give you a lot of respite, quite frankly, because the minute you walk in the door, then, you know, you're, you're on and your child has to, Jack has had to be monitored 24 seven. That doesn't mean we had to stand over him, but he certainly was on a pulse oximeter and monitored, but you know, we're in and out and with him, we want to be with him. Um, and then the the other options are, uh, I mean, we never there was never any anybody else besides a nursing a nurse that could care for him. We didn't have family extent outside family members or friends that knew his would even take the risk of caring for him because he was so fragile. Um, and then there there's a facility. There's only three in the country, I believe. Um, here in Arizona called Ryan house, which is a respite facility that you, that, that, um, watches for free children. If they qualify, if they need nursing, they qualify. And, and so Ryan house was established here in Arizona in 2010. And we used Ryan house occasionally for respite weekends where he could stay there with skilled nursing at the house. And then we could leave and so we would use that for occasional weekends. And sometimes even at Ryan House, you could the parent could stay. They had parent rooms. So I would stay the night just to be there, but knowing that I could still sleep, but I was still there if they needed me. So respite, respite is so important. Um, and if you can't get the nursing for respite and you don't have a Ryan House in your state, 
that's the biggest challenge for parents. Yeah. Right. And what, what would actually like paint a picture for what happens if, you know, you're in the middle of the week or on your Friday, I guess. And that, that nurse that wasn't your like stable four day a week nurse just does calls in and doesn't show up. How, what happens to your life that day? Well, I mean, obviously that happened a lot. Um, nurses, you know, they, for whatever, they, they get sick or they have other things they have to deal with. And, and quite frankly, they have vacations and there's not a stack of nurses lined up at the nursing agency to fill empty ships. Um, nor would I want somebody who didn't know Jack just to just show up. So we missed work. I mean, we miss a lot of work. Um, and these were the days before you worked from home. Um, so you just missed work. I mean, that's just how it was. And my, my husband worked for a big corporation. So he basically would use his sick days and his vacation days when he stayed home with Jack. And then um, I'm, I'm with, I'm more with a private firm. So, I mean, I, I obviously miss work too, but it was almost easier for him to miss work because he allocated days. Yeah. That's what you use your vacation for is when your nurse doesn't show up. That's the bottom line. Yeah. Well, one, one thing I wanted to ask you about, and we haven't talked deeply about it, but um, you know, one of the things that the unforgotten families is um, trying to help support is this program in Colorado that has actually now passed in Arizona that allows a parent to go through training um, it gives them a certified nursing assistant license, and then that enables them to be delegated tasks from a nurse and be a paid caregiver for their child. Um, talking about some of the things about like the nonverbal communication and how you as a parent have been with your child for a long time, um, what would you say, and I know it doesn't, you know, it doesn't solve every family's problem, um, especially when we talk about respite and needing a break. But what would you say some of the benefits could be for families that are able to decide that this is an option they'd like to try? Well, I think, I mean, I think it's, I think it's an ideal solution because a lot of families, like you said, cannot get nursing. I mean, there's, there's the, there's the highly, um, child who's got a lot of technology that has to have a skilled nurse. And if you don't have a skilled nurse, you have nobody. And then there's, and, and, and then there's the families that don't have quite that level of, you don't need that, you know, they don't have trachs and vents, but they still need nursing because of other issues, seizures and things like that and feeding tubes and, and just, you know, they need to be watched. And, and not every family, every parent wants to leave their child. Obviously there's a lot of parents and I, I mean, I don't mean leave. I mean, some of us go to work and some of us make the decision to stay home with our children, even our healthy children. But when you have a child that has needs, that is, um, if you have the ability to stay home and you want to stay home and your child qualifies for nursing otherwise with, with their condition, there's no reason that I don't believe. I think the parents, it's helpful to ease the financial burden of staying home using monies that would otherwise pay a skilled nurse that's not available because there just aren't that nurses aren't available anymore. It's I'm sure it's worse now than it was eight years ago when Jack, when Jack died. It's the worst it's ever been because there are nurses that are leaving um, the hospitals and leaving their whole nursing career right now because of all the stuff that's going on with COVID Um, Mm -hmm. and, and the nurses that would have maybe used to work with, 
you know, Jack, you know, they don't get paid. They get paid 30, 40% less than what they do in the hospital. But now the hospitals are even offering LPNs in some states triple the amount they'd make at home or quadruple they'd make in the home to just go fill a position. So it's getting very, the nursing shortage is becoming a, a big issue. Right, right, right. And I, and again, we, you know, I think there's, sometimes I feel like, well, it's your child, you're supposed to take care of them. But obviously, if you have no understanding of the amount of work involved, these kids are, tw- I mean, they're constant, you're not sitting around, you're, you're constantly providing care for your child. These kids require Jack required 24 seven, he couldn't move a muscle, he had to be turned, he had to be moved, he had to be changed, he had to be it's constant. So, I mean, it isn't like you're just caring for your child. You are providing medical care for your child as a parent. And none of us, not a lot of us wanted to be nurses. And, you know, we, we, we do this, we had to, because we, we love our child and we want to keep our child alive, but it is a skill. It's a, you have to learn how to do this. You don't just learn how to change out trachs and adjust ventilator settings. Yeah. I mean, honestly, a lot of the families in the home are doing higher levels of care than a nurses in the hospital. Obviously there's different levels of care in Mm -hmm. general, but nurses actually in the hospital press a button and a respiratory therapist shows up in minutes, um, if not seconds, uh, when there's an issue, like we're painting this picture of like, there's, you're a mother and there's no, your doctor's a phone call away and an ambulance away. And it's a lot. And that's what's interesting about the whole system is that these nurses get paid literally 30, 40% less than what they do in a hospital, but they're, they're doing a very high level of care and they have no physical doctor, respiratory therapist support with them. Um, so it is a lot. Exactly. And yeah, they're taking on two roles, at least the respiratory therapist and the nurse. Yes. And so it was when I was listening to you talk about it, I was like, um, Anne is a lawyer and she is an author and she's also, you're kind of a nurse too. When you were saying it's like, not all of us wanted to be a nurse, but we kind of became one. Right. Right. Well, is there anything else that you would like to share um, about your story or about the book before we close out? Um, No, I just, you know, I'd like, I'd like to encourage everybody, parents to, to get the book because I think it will resonate with you. And then also to share it with your child's doctors. We need, you know, my co-editor and I very believe this book needs to be in every pediatric residency and fellowship program in the country. It's that important. Um, The messages are that important and they're universal. And so, you know, any help we can get from parents and getting it into the hands of our doctors, we'd appreciate and I will also say that all the proceeds from the sale of this book will be donated to various nonprofits. I mean, this is not, we didn't do this to make money. We did it because it needed to be said and we had the network and the connections to make it happen. And it's a truly first of its kind book. And again, no better way to teach than through powerful stories. And there's a lot of powerful stories in the book. Hello, Tough Advocates. Thank you for listening to this episode with Ann Schruten. If you want to check out her book, Shared Struggles, 
You can find it on Amazon, Barnes and Noble, and at Target. And if you want to follow along our journey, you can find us on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube at The Unforgotten Families. We just started a YouTube channel where we are going into families' homes and really sharing their experience raising a medically fragile child and specifically looking into families who are experiencing the Family CNA program in Colorado. We're going to come out with one video a month, so if you are interested in checking that out, please go to The Unforgotten Families on YouTube and subscribe. We appreciate you listening, we appreciate you being a tough advocate, and we look forward to finding you on the next episode. Thank you so much.